It was in 1947 that Branch Rickey, the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, wanted to integrate baseball by putting Jackie Robinson, the first African-American, into the game at the major league professional level. African-Americans actually had been involved with the game even in the late 1900s and had played as stars. But because of prejudice, they had been kept out of the professional ranks. And there was a lot of bitterness and prejudice and hatred aimed at them. So this experiment that Branch Rickey had designed required a certain individual. There were many African-American players who were very skilled, excellent ball players. But Rickey was looking for one who had something more than just great athletic skill. This person had to have the character to endure suffering. He interviewed Jackie and he told him, listen, there's one thing you can't do. You can't retaliate. You've got to take it. And that's what he did. Many of the fans hated him, hated the idea. The players in baseball hated the idea. Some of the fans who hated it were Brooklyn Dodger fans and some of the players who hated it played on the Brooklyn Dodger team. And Jackie received numerous death threats. He didn't see them all. If I'm not mistaken, I think some of them are even on display in the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. But you can't retaliate. You've got to endure. And he got so discouraged because he could hardly stand up for himself. He just had to take it. The slurs, the tricks, the threats. And he wanted to quit. But there were three people who helped him stay in the game. One was Branch Rickey, who was there as a means of encouragement, kind of a fatherly type. The other was his wife, Rachel. Indeed, Rachel was a godly woman who encouraged her husband to hang in there. Don't give up. And the third player was the all-star shortstop for the Brooklyn Dodgers by the name of Pee Wee Reed. Now, Pee Wee was from Kentucky, and he was one of the most beloved players in all of baseball. And history gets a little bit fuzzy at this point as to whether this incident happened in Brooklyn or whether it happened in Cincinnati. Supposedly, Jackie had an error in a game in Brooklyn, and the fans got on him without mercy, and he just wanted to quit. Or the other story says they were playing in Cincinnati close to the home of Pee Wee Reese where a lot of his own family and friends were in the stands and the fans were on Jackie with hatred like they had not seen in either place. While the fans were giving him everything they could, they were mocking and ridiculing Jackie. Pee Wee Reese went over to second base. Pee Wee's the shortstop. He goes over to second base, puts his arm around Jackie, and identifies with him. And the crowd becomes silent. This incident is beautifully portrayed in the movie 42. That's the number of Jackie Robinson. This movie was shot in 2013. And uh, Harrison Ford plays Branch Rickey, and a guy by the name of Chadwick Bosman plays Jackie. Great performances. Powerful movie. The crowd got quiet. But the interesting thing is, later in his career, Jackie said this, it was that arm around my shoulder that saved my baseball career. 
Wow. You never know what an arm around the shoulder will do to keep someone in the race. And we all need it because we all feel like quitting. In fact, quitting is such a part of the Christian life, there's a whole book in the New Testament devoted to quitting. Well, actually devoted to keep you from quitting. It's the book of Hebrews. Let me encourage you to turn to the book of Hebrews this morning so that you won't quit. Hebrews. It's the only New Testament book where we don't know who the author is. Howard Sugden, who used to pastor this church for uh, almost 40 years, used to like to say the book of Hebrews was anonymously written by the Apostle Paul. Many people feel that Paul was the author. I'm not so sure. But whoever the author was, it was someone who intimately knew the culture of the Jews. And Paul fits the bill. It was also someone who was devotedly committed to Jesus Christ. And again, that's Paul. But whoever wrote the book of Hebrews was writing to a group of Christians who were Jews. They were Hebrews who had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but the persecution was so difficult, the ridicule so intense, the death threats so real, that they were thinking of giving up and going back to Judaism. And so the author of Hebrews says, wait a minute, Christ is superior to anything in the Judaistic system, to the Old Covenant. Christ is superior to the angels, the first chapters of the book of Hebrews. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the sacrificial system. The blood of the new covenant, which we talk about in the communion service, is far superior to the blood of the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, superior to the Arianic priesthood. Everything about Christ is better. Why would you go back? I have a dear friend who is the wife, was the wife of a former pastor of mine. I grew up in a multi-pastored church, and the CE pastor was married to this dear woman. This CE pastor died in his 60s, and his wife never remarried. She's now, I think, close to 80, and we met not too long ago, few years back and I saw her and I was talking with her and a very attractive woman very sharp and all kinds of male suitors have wanted to marry her ever since she lost her husband and I said to her how come you haven't gotten married and she said this when you've had the best you don't look at the rest (laughs) you know if you know Jesus Christ why look anywhere else he's superior to everything else And so twice in the book of Hebrews, the whole book that echoes our feeling, we want to quit, right? That's our feeling. And we need encouragement, the book of Hebrews says. So the book of Hebrews gives us encouragement, sometimes divine and sometimes human. But twice in the book of Hebrews, it says, consider him, consider Christ. It means to reflect upon him, to focus on him, to rely on him, to trust him, to be absorbed with him, to love him with all of your heart. See Jesus only. Consider him. 
In chapter 3 of Hebrews, it's consider him as a faithful and high priest over his household. He's faithful as the mediator of a better covenant. Consider him. And then when you get to chapter 12, it's consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against himself, lest you become weary and faint and want to give up. So the antidote to giving up is considering Christ. Now, I want to walk through the first four verses of chapter 12 with you, and I actually have this on the screen in the New Living Translation for this very purpose. Sometimes, with a familiar portion of Scripture like Hebrews chapter 12, we're so attuned to the words that we read over it without thinking. Sometimes it's helpful to read it in a different translation, to read it in a paraphrase to even put it in your own words so you can digest the thought. And so that's what I want to do as we walk through the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 12, New Living Translation. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. Therefore, takes us back to chapter 11. In chapter 11, we have this huge crowd of witnesses People who walked by faith, not by sight. They persevered and they were victorious because of faith. These witnesses are not watching us live today. That would be weird. It simply means that they've gone before us and their lives stand as a testimony, as a witness to us that if you walk by faith, God will bless. We're surrounded by people who did it. And so let that be a means of encouragement. Reflect upon the witnesses. Then verse 1 says, Therefore, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that easily trips us up. So now we are to remove two things, weight and sin. Weight might be the good things in our life that aren't the best things. The good things. Do you know that you can fill your life with many good things to the place where you'll never serve Christ? There are too many good things in this world. You've got to show some discernment. You've got to discriminate. You've got to say no to some good things. Now the point is, in a race, and the Apostle Paul loved to use analogies and metaphors, he was well attuned to the sports culture of the day. He knew about the Olympics. He says, in every race, a racer puts off the things that impede their race. No runner runs the race in winter clothes. They want light clothing. In fact, today they barely wear any clothing. And the point is, they want to run as fast as they possibly can. What weight, what good thing are you getting rid rid of in your life so that you can devote yourself with greater commitment to Jesus Christ. You have a list of good things you're trying to get rid of? Hebrews says you gotta do it. Secondly, sin which so easily trips us up. Now this is sin generically. Often we like to talk about our besetting sin, but actually the Hebrew has no definite article. It's the generic sin. Sin easily trips us up. And we've got to put sin to death. We've got to remove sin from our life. Hey, what sin are you trying to get rid of in your life right now? Do you have a list of several 
sins. You might call them besetting. They may be darling sins that you love too much to get rid of. You can't run the race without getting rid of the weights and removing the sin. And then run with endurance. Patient stick-to-itiveness. Endurance. Run with endurance. The Christian life is a race. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Run with endurance, the race that God has set before you. Each of us has our own race to run. So how are we gonna do it? Well, verse two says we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. He is called the champion because he is victorious. He's the champion of our faith. He's the one who initiates faith and he's the one who perfects faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus, as some translations have it, because he's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who starts you going. He's the one who keeps you, keeps you going. He's the one who brings you to the finish line. Keep looking to Jesus throughout the whole race. That's the only way you can endure. And then it says, because you look to Jesus, because he ran his race and endured, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he's seated in the place of honor next to God's throne. Now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. The New Living Translation is a bit free here, but it gives you the wonderful emphasis and meaning of being at the right hand. It's a place of honor. It's a place of prestige. It's a place of accomplishment and victory. That's where the champion of our faith sits, Jesus. He sits because he's done. Done as far as redeeming us, as far as purchasing our redemption. So verse 3 says, consider him. Think of all the hostility he endured. There's that word endure again. We've seen it three times now. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people, and then you won't become weary and give up. That's the antidote to weariness. Keep thinking about Jesus. That's why we do the communion service, one of the reasons why we do it every month so that we can remember Christ and consider Christ and not grow weary in our walk, remember his sufferings. Verse four simply says, after all, you've not yet given your lives in the struggle against sin. This whole thing about running is a struggle. It's an endurance race. You've not died, Jesus has. So look to him who died, rose again, and is seated at the right hand. Now, because this portion of Scripture is so full, and we don't have time to really do it justice, even if we spent the rest of the year on it, I'm going to complete this message actually tonight. We're going to talk a little bit more about running and how to run from Hebrews 12. But because of communion, I want to focus our thoughts around two questions. Question number one, what did Jesus endure on the cross? Notice verse 2 says, because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What did he endure? 
Well, it may surprise you to know that there are at least five different ways for us to look at the sufferings of Jesus. And the first is what is most commonly known, physical pain. On the cross, Jesus endured physical pain, right? I mean, that's what we all think about. Crucifixion is a horrible, horrible uh, way to go. It's torturous. He was pierced and crushed and wounded and bruised. He was beaten. Long before the cross, he was abused. And for six hours, he hung on the cross with intense pain. Someone has said that because Jesus was holy and pure and knew no sin, that he as a human being could experience life to its fullest And that also means he could endure and experience pain in its most intense fashion. No one read him as Miranda writes. The treatment of Christ was awful and unlawful. And he endured the cross because he loves you. It was a brutal and bloody scene. If it were depicted as it really happened, You could not endure seeing it. I suppose the movie The Passion comes the closest as humanly possible to depict the horrible crucifixion of Christ. And I saw that once and have no desire to see it again. It's not because I don't want to think about The Passion. It's because I just it tears me up. The second aspect of the endurance on the cross, the suffering of the cross, we might call social shame. It's actually mentioned in verse 2. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. Did you know that there is shame connected to the cross? Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, whoever dies, whoever hangs on a cross is cursed. And everyone believed that. Jerusalem would have been filled with a lot of people for the festival. And so the city streets now are enlarged with these huge crowds who love a good crucifixion. Nothing like a good hanging to draw a crowd. And they would come and ridicule the criminals who were being executed. And if they stood on the gallows or if they were nailed to a cross, everyone thought they were despised. He was despised and rejected of men. Nothing beautiful in him, and everyone despised him. Think about the social shame that Jesus had to endure. I think Philip Bliss had it right when he wrote that wonderful hymn, Man of Sorrows. What a name. One stanza says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. And he sealed my pardon with his blood. What's the rest of it? Hallelujah. What a Savior. He endured social shame. But there's more. How about something we might call spiritual rage? This is the anger and antagonism of the religious leaders. Now, it is not anti-Semitic to say that the religious leaders nailed Christ to the cross. It's only wrong to say they were the only ones. You can't rewrite history. They hated Jesus. Not all of them, some of them. Some of the key leaders. They designed the plot. They paid Judas. 
They wanted him dead. And when he was hanging on the cross, it was Jewish religious leaders who said, why don't you save yourself? If you come down from the cross, we'll believe in you. And they mocked him. They ridiculed him. They slandered him. And Jesus endured. Isn't it tough to stand there when people are calling you names? That's what Jackie had to endure. Jesus had to endure it as well. Far more, deeper, more intense. But then there's something else. And this is, I think, where the suffering is beyond our comprehension. Let's call this judicial wrath. Jesus endured the cross, on the cross, the righteous judgment of a holy God who was offended. You see, today, a lot of people want to eliminate the bad aspects of Christianity, and one of the things they take aim at first is this idea of the wrath of God. And they try to say that it doesn't exist, but you can't read your Bible, you can't read your New Testament, you can't read the Gospel of John from the author who loved Jesus without seeing he who believes not, the wrath of God continues to hang over their head. You can't read Romans chapter 1 that says the wrath of God has been revealed against heaven against all unrighteousness. You see, God's a holy God. And he loves all the people he's created, but when we sided with sin, his justice demanded punishment. A hell that you and I could not endure. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he took legally, uh, judicially, all the punishment that justly was aimed at us, he endured it on the cross. And we sang a moment ago, this is the power of the cross. Christ becomes sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven only because of that. We stand forgiven because of the cross. By the way, if there's no wrath of God, there's no need for a cross. But Jesus went to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin sin for us. He became our sin offering. He identified with us. He put his arm around us when he took upon himself human flesh. He identified with a sinful human race. He had not sinned, but he identified with our sin at the cross. And he endured the wrath. That's the suffering of the cross. But you know, there's a way in which maybe it was even a little worse, for there's one other aspect that he had to endure. His suffering included what we might call filial detachment. The father turns his back on the son. Divine disunion. Use whatever word you want. Separation in the Trinity. Whatever it was, It is unbelievable to comprehend. It was predicted in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus quotes that on the cross from Matthew. In Matthew, it's recorded. 27, verse 46. 
Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. In the original language, I guess adding force to it, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is not saying why in the sense of I don't know, but it's a lament. Oh God, you've forsaken me. Why? It's pain. It's pain like you and I cannot describe. And I think this is what Jesus was praying for in the garden when he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't saying I want to avoid the cross. (laughs) He came to die. He was saying, if it's possible, so that I don't have to bear this disunion with you. If there's any other way, but not my will, yours be done. During the Civil War, there's a story of a, of a father who was strongly a supporter of the South, and they lived in one of those middle states. One of his sons became a Yankee sympathizer. His dad didn't know it until the son came to him and said, Dad, I want to go fight in the war. The dad said, good son, that's noble, that's loyal. And he said, Dad, I want to fight for the North. And the dad was distraught. It was a few days later that the son had gotten his things together and decided to go. And he said, Dad, I just want to say goodbye. And this is what his dad said to him. He said, son, the moment you put on that Yankee uniform, the moment you identify with those people, I must turn my back on you. And when Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself and identified with us, it's not what the Father enjoyed doing, but he had to do it. He turned his back on the Son. Well, I'm so thankful that when Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, the Father took him welcomed him into heaven and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. When Jesus said, it is finished, the Father took him back and the Trinity was restored. And that's what Jesus endured. Now, why did he endure it? Well, Hebrews tells us this too. For the joy that was placed before him, for the joy that was set before him, verse two, he endured the cross. And after enduring it, he successfully sits down at the right hand, victorious. What did he endure? That's his suffering. Why did he endure it? This is his satisfaction. First of all, notice the intentionality of it. Jesus endured with this clear goal in mind. There's joy beyond the suffering. And that's why I'm going to the cross. Something is going to be accomplished. Something eternal is going to be accomplished, and that's why I'm going to hang in there. I suppose maybe the best illustration would be in the human realm when a woman has more than one child, goes through the horror of of labor, knowing what it is, having had a child before, and yet does it anyhow because of the joy that comes afterward. Uh, My wife had five children. I think after the first one, it was pretty amazing that she wanted any more. 
And yet she kept going for the joy that was set before her. I can remember one time describing the fact that we had five girls and somehow we got talking about the birth of the five girls. And so I described how Carrie was born, the first one, the longest, the hardest, and then this. And and I said, Kendra, that was the easiest birth. And I'll never forget Nancy looking at me. (laughs) And she gave me an evil eye. Now, those of you who know Nancy doesn't think she has one, but she does. And she gave me that evil eye like she was saying there was nothing easy about it. It was quick. That's what I was trying to say. I was going for quick and missed. (laughs) It wasn't easy. Because there's nothing easy about childbirth. Then why do you women do it? For the joy that comes afterward, right? I think if, if... You know, populating the earth was up to men. This place would be unpopulated. But women go forth and endure. Jesus endured because he had his eyes set on the prize. And what was the prize? I love the way Isaiah says it. This is Isaiah 53, verse 11. He will see the result of his suffering and be satisfied. He will see the travail of his soul. He will see what his sufferings have purchased and be satisfied. By this knowledge will my righteous servant justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. So the suffering is all about Jesus bearing our sin, and the enduring is all about the joy that comes afterwards, a race of redeemed people, a world reconciled to God, a people he can call his own and present to the Father as purchased forgiven, and righteous. He'll see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. So that's why we need to endure, because of what Jesus endured. I find it interesting that the writer of Hebrews, as we'll see tonight, uses what Jesus endured and why to spur us on to keep going. There's a great story told of Abraham Lincoln when he was but a boy. His mom was laying on her deathbed and The legend has it that she called her young child Abe over to her bedside and she could barely talk. And through a whisper, she said to him, Son, be somebody. Now, I don't know why she said it. Maybe he was a precocious young child, you know, that you just knew was not going to amount to anything. He's gangly, he's uncoordinated. He maybe wasn't too intelligent at that point. Wasn't a lot of promise in the young boy. And she called him over and said, Abe, be somebody. Never forgot that. He dedicated his life to being somebody. Jesus says to us, when he dies on the cross, I did it for you. He who gave his life for us to redeem us now needs to be the one whom we serve with all our heart, soul, body, mind, and strength. Consider Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll help us in this communion service today as we have already experienced the elements never to forget why you endured and what you endured so that we might endure as well. In Jesus' name, amen.